So Tiffany loves to hike. She loves to hike. She loves it. Loves it. I like to travel by car or motorcycle, generally, generally speaking. But I do love my wife, and I love spending time with my wife. So hiking it is. That's, that's how it's going to go. Uh, early in the week, a couple of weeks ago, we were trying to figure out a time we could hike together. And we came up with Friday morning. I had some space open on Friday morning. So we were going to go on a hike on Friday morning. Turned out that that space filled up, um, as it sometimes does, and so we had to go Friday afternoon. So we didn't get to have our coffee in the morning and do that thing where you drive out and hike and whatever that apparently people like. Um, instead, we had to kind of rush after I was done with some other stuff out there to the mountain. Took us about an hour to get there. We left about four in the afternoon. Um, so we started heading up the mountain about 5 p.m. This is Hamilton Mountain. I don't know how many of you have been to Hamilton Mountain. Who's, been to, who's hiked Hamilton Mountain? People are crazy. All right. As we begin this hike, it's uphill, terrible. I realize hiking in general is a terrible idea. I realize that early on. I always realize it, but I still go. Um, this is an uphill hike big time. This is not like, you know, flat type thing, which to me, that's the kind of hiking that I generally like. Uh, this is an uphill thing. I don't mind a little nature walk, but this is work, right? Like I've already been working that day, and then I'm going to go do some more work we're supposedly doing for fun, right? Um, but I can't let my wife know that like right out of the gate I'm in pain, right? Because like first few steps of that, I'm like, oh, this is bad. And we got miles, miles to go before we sleep. So I didn't, I just acted like it was good and I was in front of her so she couldn't see my face like that as I was going. Anyway. So uh, as we go up, there's people coming down the mountain and they're all, you know, young and healthy and they're all happy. Everybody's happy coming down the mountain, right? Like, okay, Yeah. I'm sure you are happy. They're almost done hiking. That's why they're happy, because the hiking's almost over. We just kept hiking and sweating and hiking, and eventually we did it. We got up to where we were planning to go, which is a couple miles up this mountain. That's where we had planned to stop, and I can tell you, not a moment too soon, because I was spent. I was done. I had nothing left. My legs hurt. My sense of self hurt. Um, my realizing how old I am hurt. Tiffany was clearly in better shape than me, and I wasn't happy about that uh, because she was able to do it. She's like, we're good. We're good to go. And I'm like, no, I couldn't move another step. Rough afternoon, okay? So, so we're done with, the, this is the rough part. Now, we start heading back to the car. Now, that, this is where I excel. When it comes to hiking, <laughs> this is where I'm crushing it yes. downhill, okay? The downhill thing, I mean, I am just, I'm, I'm crushing it. I love it. It's good. I don't know why all hikes aren't downhill. It's way better, right? Way better. Some people will say to me, actually, I find downhill harder because it's hard on my knees or on my shins. And I'm like, are you crazy? It is so much better. Downhill is splendid. Okay, let me just tell you, it, it doesn't hurt. I can use the same thing that makes me hurt going uphill to make it easy going downhill, which is my huge fat body. So <laughs> momentum is in my favor on the downhill trip. I seem in really good shape on the downhill part. So I, I would, what I want to do is start leading downhill hikes with really healthy people who say, oh, it hurts when I go downhill, and I'll just look like I'm just a mountain man. I'm crushing it because they're hurting going downhill, and I'm just like, hey, try to keep up, milkshake, you know, just doing the <laughs> suckers. Anyway, we're beginning to head downhill. I mean, this is, we're, we haven't gone far downhill at all. Tiffany's walking and her shoe slips. So her shoe slips like this 
and her right leg goes behind her, and she lands on it. And she hears a pop. <sighs> yeah. She came down and broke her ankle badly. Um, I tried to get her to be tough and just hoof it out. I'm like, come on, get up. <laughs> Rub some dirt in it. After all, we're at the downhill part. This is my time to shine. She's crushing me on the uphill part. Now it's my turn. Now she's going to get hurt. I wasn't happy. No, I'm kidding. I wasn't like that at all to her. Um, just kidding. Uh, we didn't know what it was. If it was a break or a sprain or a twist or a, I don't know, with all the words. Um, but we didn't know what it was. Um, but we knew that we had just a little under a couple miles to go back to the car. And we decided we we're going to try to make it down because what else are you going to do? I don't have the number for the helicopters, you know. Um, so... I planned to carry her part way, and then we got a stick for her to kind of lean on and, and, and hobble part of the way. This is around 6.30 in the evening when she breaks her ankle. And so we've got a couple hours, maybe a few hours of light. And I figured going slow, going, going fast, it would have been about 40 minutes, maybe max, really, because you're going downhill. I figured going slow, maybe a couple hours. So maybe 8, 8.30, we'd be done, and it would still be light. So we began. Um, I can tell you that going downhill carrying someone not as easy as going downhill, not carrying someone. Just, especially someone you do not want to drop because they broke their ankle. Um, so it, w- it wasn't as good. Uh, partway I carried her, eventually it just became easier because when you're carrying somebody, you're also shaking them as you go, you know? And so her ankle, it wasn't great. Uh, so, so she mostly stuck to the stick, take the pressure off, and we were just kind of like, like this, going down that mountain. Um, one small step at a time. People are passing us and giving us those like hiker nods, like, yeah, we're all having a good time out here, which really means, yeah, we, we want this over just like you do, but we're going to Instagram it and look like we do our thing just like you do. Um, that's the hike or not. Anyway, they'd say, how's it going? But they weren't really asking. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to be inconvenienced by us. And I realized why shortly thereafter, people kind of just like, oh, hey, you know. Uh, it wasn't just that they didn't want to help. When Tiffany fell and we knew it was her ankle, I had to to wrap her ankle up because Boy Scout, right? I wasn't much of a Boy Scout, but I didn't know you were supposed to like wrap stuff up. I didn't have anything. So I was wearing these pants and I just did this, right? Cut off the bottom. You guys like, those are huge. These were the ones before I lost all the weight, okay? No, they barely fit me. Anyway, so I'm wearing these. I haven't washed them since. Um, I don't know if you know how good I look in shorts, but it's something. It's, it's a thing. So I'm wearing these one leg and one leg long. Tiffany's got dirt in her hair, pine straw on her because we've fallen down. There's mosquitoes following us around. Eventually, I realized also that somehow, and I have no idea how this happened on this day, but I put my T-shirt on backwards. So we look like we live in the hills somewhere. Like we've just come out of a hovel. My, you know, one pant leg, you know, thing coming down. You know, she's hobbling on a stick and we're, you know, like we're trolls that live under the bridge. That's what we look like. So I'm not surprised. It was worth it to bring these up here for that. I just want you to know. I'm, gonna, um, I'm not surprised people didn't really want to help us out. There actually was a nice man who brought us a headlamp. He actually went down and came back up and brought us a headlamp because that 8 to 8.30 thing was not happening. was not happening. Um, the evening turned into about 10.30 p.m., about four hours and uh, partially in the dark. At first, it was like, oh, it's a full moon. It's going to be relatively light. No, once you get into the forest, it's not light in there. Um, so that man was a godsend who brought us something. He lives here in Vancouver. I forgot his name. Anyway, um, eventually, we saw the doctor, found out Tiffany's ankle is broken, and she will be having surgery on Thursday. 
to put a metal plate and then screw screws into her bones, if you like to think about that kind of thing. Um, so, there's the story. But here's the question. Why? Why does God let things like this happen, right? Tiffany, she's really nice. And we were exercising, you know? <laughs> Why does God let things like this? Was this God's plan? What about the other people in our body who are sick? We got all kinds of people who struggle with stuff because we live in a fallen world. What about the things that happen in the world that we see on the news that break our hearts? What about salvation and those who don't have salvation? What about our friends who don't know the Lord? What about our family members, our children who don't follow the Lord? Is that God's plan? These are hard questions, right? These are questions about what we call the sovereignty of God. The idea of sovereignty is the idea that the sovereign is the one with power. The one who is able to do, the, do things. And the idea is that God is sovereign over everything, over all of creation. That God has sovereignty. And that's the question. Does he have ultimate power over creation? If so, does anything happen, including Tiffany's ankle breaking and all the things we see and our friends and, and family members who aren't saved? Is all of that the will of God? It's a very complex and massively important question. Most of us have absolutely no problem talking about the will of God when we're talking about the amazing goodness of God and the amazing things that God does. We have no problem talking about his will when he's, when he's come through for us. I have no problem talking about the will of God and the guy bringing us the headlamp so we can get down the thing. It's a little hard to talk about the will of God with my wife's ankle snapping, right? You don't instantly think, well, that was the will of God. You think, oh man, that's a bummer. But we have to think about it, right? We don't have a problem talking about God's will when he's giving good gifts, which we all get, right? James 1:17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. All the good stuff. Clearly that's all his will. What about the not good stuff? We can attribute the good stuff to the sovereignty of God, but what about the other things? What about Tiffany's broken ankle? What about, I think uh, we had another broken ankle in the church uh, last night that I heard about. Um, we got people dealing with different diseases, cancer, all kinds of stuff. What about those is that the will of God? The chapter of Romans that we are getting into right now, chapter 9, uh, is a major section of the scripture where some theologians find the answer to this question and some don't find the answer here. It's very interesting. What it comes down to for most people who study this idea is what do we, what do we mean when we talk about the will of God or God's will versus man's will? There are very, two, two very popular ideas on this issue, and they both uh, see this message that we're going to read in Romans 9 actually very differently. They, they don't both see it the same, these two kind of camps. But before we wrestle with these ideas, we need to ask ourselves some important questions, okay? We've got to ask ourselves some important questions about, about what we're doing here. And so the first question is, why are we studying this scripture? Why is that? Why is this scripture important, and what can we know about this scripture? So let, let's, let's get into that, because if we don't ask these questions, when we approach the scripture out of the gate, we can get sidetracked or misinterpret scripture, and we don't want to do that, especially here where things get dicey. 
Why are we studying the scripture? Well, in one sense, when we go to the Bible, and you should think about this when you're studying scripture by yourself or doing your devotions in the morning or coming here to study the word or those of you who go to youth group or a life group or the Wednesday night Genesis study or whatever it is, why are we studying scripture? What are we doing it for? Well, there's several reasons. One, we study the scripture to know God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit more and more and more. The scripture reveals, it is the word of God. It reveals who God is, and we want to know him more and more. The Bible is full of truth about God. The more we study it, the more we understand who he is and who we are, and the more peace and joy that we have. That's my experience. It's the experience of millions of saints who have gone before us, that the more we study, the more we know. Those of you who are like, I just don't feel like I know God, the first thing I would ask you is, are you studying the word? Are you going to the place where he said, I'm revealing myself and actually digging in and studying it. Because if you're doing that, you do know God. If you're doing that, the Holy Spirit is leading you. You're going to know God more and more. And we're going to have peace and joy because things in the Scripture like Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Here's a promise of God that answers whatever we say about the will of God in Tiffany's ankle being broken or in somebody dying or in our children you know, seemingly not coming to be saved or whatever it is, what we do know is that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we at least know that no matter what everything else is. That's the kind of thing we know about God by reading the scripture. That's the kind of thing that gives us peace, calms our anxieties because we know how much he cares for us. That's the hope that leads to peace. Helps us stay focused on his truth. We also study the scripture to know how to live because I can tell you, you can go again, watch the news, walk outside, go to a public school, um, you know, just, just open your eyes and see most people don't know how to live. They don't know how to live. They're, they're doing it wrong. They're doing real bad. You can see that. Why? Because they're not living according to the word. Psalm 119, 105. By the way, there are Bibles in front of you in these, in these chairs. If you don't have a Bible today and you want one to follow along with, or you don't have one at home, take one home. That's our gift to you. That's for you. Honestly, take it. It's free. We want you to have the Word of God in your home. We are very big on the Word of God here. So take one. Psalm 119, 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This one, as I think about it, is very much like what happened as Tiffany and I are stumbling through the darkness in the forest at night, and I've got my phone here, and I've got this headlamp, and just all we can see is what's right in front of us. That's all we can see. He's lighting our path, right? That's what the Word of God does. As we stumble through this broken world, in front of us, God's showing us, don't step there. Don't step there. That's a rock that's sideways. You step on that with a broken ankle, it's going to get worse. Look at what you're doing. Here we go. The Bible does it. It shows us. Those who don't have the Word, they're hiking down the hill in the dark, that's why they keep falling. That's why it's a disaster. That's why they fall off the side of the mountain. That's why, they, that's why they stumble. That's why they make a mess because they don't have the word of God as part of their life. They're not studying it, and so it's not lighting their feet. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction, right? To help us understand, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It shows us how to live. 
without the word of God, without the scripture, we are going to stumble in the dark. And if you find yourself stumbling, most of us do, because we still stumble with sin, part of the reason for that is probably because you are not in the word. I can tell you, I feel it when I'm not in the word. When I go and, and I don't get my daily devotion on whatever it happens to be, and I'm not getting God's word, I feel it. If you guys have ever been, maybe you've been a sick or you've been on vacation for a while, or you've missed church however long in a row, you've been off your routine, you haven't really been in the word, you feel it. You feel it. Because it's the word that's giving us life, right? It's showing us life. It's showing us where to go and how to walk. It shows us who we are, and it shows us the way to salvation. It's extremely important. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, just before actually the other passage we just read. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The scriptures, these scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. Wise for salvation. That's important through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I imagine that we all want to be wise for salvation. If we want to, we got to read the word. Okay. So now you know why we read the word. Those are some of the reasons. Why is this scripture here important? Romans 9. Well, Romans 9 tells us a lot of things. It tells us some things about who God is. Tells us who God is and his plan for salvation. It shows us how he has worked through all time to bring about his loving plan for his children. It is also very difficult. It is also something that you will probably, as you, as you know the Lord more and more, as you're around more and more saints, more believers, you are going to run into people who have very strong opinions on this. And you need to be grounded in the scripture so you understand what you believe about who God is, about his sovereignty, and about how it works. That's why it's important. Now, this last question, what can we know about this scripture? Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, um, the last study that I led here on Romans, I talked a lot about what we can know and holding things that we understand from the scripture at different levels of certainty. We have some things that we know absolutely for certain, like the things in the creeds, right? Jesus, born of a virgin, died, rose on the third day, you know, salvation, all these things. We, those things are solid. But then there's some other things that we have, uh, maybe we're pretty sure of, kind of sure of, and so on. So Romans 9, the issues of God's sovereignty and so on, where does that fall? Where does that fall? I think we can have a good understanding of Romans 9. But our understanding of God's sovereignty, which is an extremely complex thing, is only as good as what the Holy Spirit gives us to understand. And here's what I mean by that. In other words, we can only understand a concept as complicated as the sovereignty of God up to the level that God has for us. You may not need to understand it as well as Rick needs to understand it. And he may not need to understand it as well as Julie needs to understand it. However that is. But the Holy Spirit will work through you. He teaches you. And some of you are going to come out of this and be like, I still don't think I really understand it. And that's okay. What God wants is for you to try. He wants you to work through it. And what you can't understand, you can't understand because it is difficult. Remember that there are men and women who love Jesus who have very different ideas of how the text in Romans 9 should be viewed. But they love Jesus. So that should give us some level of humility before God and before his word, the scriptures, and knowing that our conclusions 
on this chapter should be held with grace and understanding, okay? Uh, and I'm saying this because I've been around a long time. I'm old. That's another way of saying I'm old. And I've, I've had a number of these conversations, discussions with people on, on issues like Romans 9 and the, and the sovereignty of God and thing. And people can get very, very sort of dyed in the wool on their side. And what we need to do is we need to have some humility and some grace for other people. There is nothing in Romans 9 that should cause a break in communion between the saints, between orthodox, baptized believers. Nothing in Romans 9 should be causing uh, division, okay? All believers should do their best to understand this, but not to have unnecessary quarrel and conflict with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, that's, that's the issue. Most, most important thing to remember as we walk into this, like with any scripture, you gotta always remember the, the basics and the fundamentals and the things that we know for sure. God is good. God is good. Therefore, nothing we read in Romans 9 should cause you to question God's goodness. Because we know from the scriptures and we know from our own experience that God is good all the time and that everything God does is good. We know that from every piece of scripture. And so, as we go through Romans 9, keep that in mind. Because, Lord willing, as we will see, there are actually some objections that people have that the scripture answers here that seem to question God's goodness. In other words, some of this, you'll see the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write something and he'll say, what should we say then? And, and he'll bring up a kind of an objection that people might have. And some of those objections are about whether God can, can be the way that he is and be good. Well, we know going into it that he's good, so we don't have to have those objections. I just want you to remember that as we go through it. So long as you understand that whichever the ideas that you sort of uh, take from Romans 9, that you're convinced that the plan for your life is still the same, the goodness of God is still the same, the Great Commission is still the same, all those things are still the same, Okay. We don't have to uh, question really anything, honestly. Even when we come to our conclusions on this, on this piece of theology here through Romans 9, it really doesn't change almost anything about the way you live as a Christ follower. It's more of one of those things that's, uh, that's trying to understand God at a deeper level. So, having prepped this and prepped it and prepped it and prepped it, let's read it, shall we? I'm gonna read through the whole thing. I'm gonna point out, a couple spots as we go through here that are gonna be sort of the sticky points, okay? Um, but we're gonna study the whole, we're gonna read it today, and then I'm gonna go through sort of the two camps and help you understand those so you have a framework so that we come back through in the next time and study through this that you have an understanding of the framework of how people are thinking about this, okay? So let's read it first. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Now I want you to remember something as we start. You know how I do this, I start reading and then I stop. Um, I want you to remember something. Romans, as if you were here from the beginning of this study, you know that Romans is written like an argument. Love it. Love Romans. Love arguing. Love arguments. It's wonderful. And so if you actually go back, um, I, I kind of walked through and, and even gave some handouts through the first few chapters of Romans of sort of how the argument's working and where the verses fit in the argument and so on. But you got to remember that. So one thing I want you to remember as we go through this is this didn't start, this, this book didn't start in Romans 9. It started with Romans 1. So this is actually in the middle of an argument. So hold back judgment on sort of the things that pop out as we go through this, because actually when you understand them in the context of the argument, we, we look at the whole council of scripture, you'll, you'll see how they fit in a little better. But I just want you to know that, that this isn't just a thing sitting in space. This is part of an entire letter to the Romans, which are both Israelites and Gentiles, 
right? You remember that, that stuff about the church. Okay, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. If you're wondering where it says that Jesus is God in the Bible, this is one of the many, many, many places where it says it as directly as you could say it. So you see here, I'm just going to give you a quick, Paul is talking about his sorrow in his heart that all of his brothers, the Israelites, because Paul is a, is a Jewish man, that they're not all saved. And he's saying, man, because we got all this stuff, that God gave us all this stuff, we were his chosen people, we have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, they have the scripture, the service of God, they're the ones who do the service in the temple, uh, the promises, the, the fathers from them, Christ came through them, and so on. Why are they not all saved? He's sad about it. He's saying, oh, I, I would even, he's not saying I want to be a curse of Christ, but he's saying, I could even think that. I'm so sad in my heart that not all of Israel is saved. We go on, verse six. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. This is where things are gonna, this section is where things are gonna start to get dicey. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Okay, so he's saying, just because you're born an Israelite, that your flesh, that in other words, your genetics, you came through the line of Israel, does not mean that you're a child of God automatically. That there's more to it. And of course, we know that if we've read the first eight chapters of Romans, he's already gone through why that is. But here he is repeating this part for this argument. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That was the promise. Remember that he went and had a son with Hagar, and had Ishmael, but that was not the child of promise. The promise was that Sarah would have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, this is, where, this is where things start to get real dice, okay? For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, you read that and you go, before they were born, before they done anything good or bad, you get to Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, and you start going, whoa, that doesn't sound right to me. They didn't do anything wrong, but God hated one and loved the other one. Don't get your pants in a wad. We're going to get to explain what that's about so you can understand that more fully. Um, but it is, it's, it's difficult. It's complicated. What shall we say then? Okay, here's, here's one of these objections. Is there unrighteousness with God? So he says these things and he knows the first thing you're gonna, people are going to think is, that doesn't sound righteous. That before they're born, they haven't done anything good or bad. That God, that God loved this one and hated this one. That's, that, that's not good. So he says, what shall we say? In other words, what would the objectors say, right? What shall we say then? Is there a righteousness with God? Certainly not. No. Real easy. We knew that coming in. It's still true. There's no unrighteousness with God. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. This is, this is saying in another way, salvation by grace through faith, that God does the work. Okay? We know that. God's, God does the work. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say then, why does he still find fault? Another objection, right? Why would God find fault if in fact he is the one who's hardening some and showing mercy to others? In other words, they don't have a choice. If they don't have a choice about what they're doing, why does he still find fault? Well, there's a question about whether that's what's really being said. But the first thing that the Holy Spirit through Paul comes back with is kind of like if you've read the book of Job. You get some of that feel here. Okay, and this is what he says. It says, why did he find fault for who has resisted his will? God wills that this one's bad, this one's good. Who's resisting his will? Why would he find fault in the bad one when it was his will for that one to be bad? And this is what he says. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? This is an important thing to remember. We have this sort of, and, and they had some of it too because our Western culture came largely from Greek and Roman culture that they were in at the time. This is a book to the Romans. We have this idea, we're a little uh, cheeky, as the Brits would say. Who are you to question God? Which one of you made a tree this morning? None of you. Which one of you created the world? Which one of you knows how it works? None of you, right? And so there is this thing, this overarching idea. When you hear something, you go, that doesn't, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Which, which is what, I understand why someone would say that. You read that and you go, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense with the other things I've read. But the first thing that, that Paul comes back with, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write is, whoa, before you get going crazy, I'm gonna explain, but before you get going crazy here, who are you to question God? You don't have the jurisdiction to question God. Well, the thing formed, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God wanted to show his, what if, he says here, this is important. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. And then who are the vessels of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? And here's what he says. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So, we've gone through this thing. All of that is, is, is difficult. If you take it in a reading by itself, with nothing else around it and so on, it seems kind of harsh. God says to this one, you're going to be this, that one, you're going to be that, but I'm still going to hold you accountable for being the thing that I made you be. If that's what's being said here, that has some harshness to it. But there's a real question, like I said, about what is being said and what's not being said. We're going to get into that, Lord willing. Let's finish the chapter. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. This is the Gentiles, right? Everyone who's not a Jew. And her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. 
Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnants will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath, the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Amorah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Here's the question. He's going to answer it. Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. That's Jesus, right? And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Okay. That's Romans 9. Figure it out. No, I'm kidding. We're going to get all up in figuring this one out, okay? Um, As we study the scripture, we're going to parse out the implications of what's written here. And you're going to have to understand it in terms of the larger argument that's being made. Okay? But to understand sort of the debate between Christians on this issue, you'll need to be familiar with a couple of terms, which I'm going to tell you after I drink this water. Okay, the first term is Arminianism. It's fun, Arminianism. Um, This is a theological framework, okay? It's a way of understanding the scripture. It's named for a theologian from the 16th century. Arminius, pretty easy, Arminianism. The second term is Calvinism, named after a comic book strip. No, it wasn't. Second term is Calvinism, which is a different way of understanding the scripture than Arminianism, Named for a different theologian from the 16th century. So we had a couple of guys in the 16th century. People kind of put themselves in these camps of these guys and how they understand not only Romans 9, but sort of a framework for how they understand God's sovereignty. But Romans 9 is like the proof text for Calvinists, and Arminians have a different view on that. So you got to understand Arminians and Calvinists, and that's just a shorthand of, of, of describing things that I'm going to tell you about here in a second, Okay. Um, you will find many people who study the Bible who hold a viewpoint on these issues who actually have some mix of the views I'm about to tell you about, okay? It's not all Arminian. It's not all Calvinist for a lot of people. They're kind of in between both of them. And then you'll find people who hold these views strongly as Calvinists, what some people would call hardcore Calvinists. They usually have beards. Um, they drink like microbrews and... There's a whole thing. Like, you know, these guys, like the hardcore Calvinists, like they have, there's, a whole, there's a whole culture there. Um, and then you have some pretty hardcore Arminians as well. And when you get the two of them together, it's honestly, it's kind of ugly. I don't love it. Um, you can get people who love Jesus who want to talk about it and who are just like, when you're getting into something like, I want to understand God, let's talk about God. That's great. When you get into like, this is my camp and I want to fight with you, that's not great. Unnecessary quarrels and divisions in the church, not great. And sometimes that can happen on this issue and others because we're humans, Um, but that's who they are. So as for us, remember, we're looking to understand what the scripture says. I don't care about names of theologians and putting myself in a camp that has somebody's name on it or anything like that. What I care about and what we care about here at Acts Church is what does the scripture say? And so that's what we're gonna study and we'll see where, I'm gonna be honest with you about where I come out on this, um, on the different issues. And you can also, Honestly, hold whatever you end up holding as you go through here because there are people who love Jesus who hold all of these views, okay? 
But we want to give a fair, fair hearing to both of these views and maybe a few hybrid views of these. But let me explain the simple version. We're going to walk through this this morning. I don't have a lot of time left. Looks like we lost our thing there. So I got to look at my thing to see what time it is. Oh, gosh, we're fine. I got minutes left. Okay. Let me explain both of these views by using the five-point method. The five-point method, and the reason I do that is because they both have five points. The Armenians have five points. The Calvinists have five points. One was kind of a response to the other. Supposedly, I don't know. I'm not, you know, that's what they say. Um, just for informational purposes, I got the language for both these points from the same website. So you kind of have, uh, one, you know, I'm not getting like the, the, this side from that. And that's just one website. It's called CARM.org. It's Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. Um, and so here we go. Five points of Arminianism. Here we go. Here we go. Number one, human free will. This states, this is what it says. This states that though man has fallen, he is not incapacitated by the sinful nature and can freely choose God. His will is not restricted and enslaved by his sinful nature. It's what some people refer to as free will, right? Free will versus determinism. So this is as opposed to determinism. This is a concept of theology like it is here. Also just a concept in philosophy in general. For instance, all atheists are determinists. They're not free will people. They cannot be. It's, ne it's necessary that if there's no God, that everything is determined. In other words, everything you do is just what you do because you do it. You, don't have, you actually aren't in control. You aren't really making choices. That's only an illusion of your mind that's also created by things that weren't your choice because the universe went in motion. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. So you're completely determined if you're an atheist. That's, philosophically, you're determined. In the scripture, in theology, free will and determinism has to do with how much God determines your salvation in this case, or what you do, and so on, your plan, versus how much choice you have in it. So the Arminians, they go all the way on one side, free will. I do what I want to do, to some extent. I'm, to be fair, most Arminians wouldn't say they think they have utter and complete free will to do anything. They talk about some of the things. But that's, let's just, easy, free will, okay? Free will, you do what you want to do. Um, many Christians... Uh, believe this as a general rule. In fact, our laws and the way we live in general presumes it. Okay? We presume that we have a will because we would not be putting people in jail and punishing them if we thought that what they were doing they had no choice about. Right? So the law presumes it when, we do, when, you, when you say, hey, why did you do that? You assume that the person has some level of will to have done something, right? So we live in such a way that we think we're making choices, and we believe other people are making choices, and we believe we're responsible for our choices, and the scripture seems to suggest that we are, and so the idea of free will, or will, or however you want to look at it, certainly seems to be there. The question really here is one that's soteriological, or about salvation. Where is your will personally in salvation. So that's what they're going to get to. Let's not get too deep into it because I don't have time to go into all of it today. We're going to get there, Lord willing. Um, but basically the question is, does God choose and make you, but, you know, go over your will, okay, or do you choose God? That's, that's kind of the question that they have on the free will thing. The next one's called conditional election, which Pretty easy. God chose people for salvation based on his foreknowledge, where God looks into the future to see who would respond to the gospel message. So this is Pastor Dave talking about the band, and you're on the drone, or you're in the helicopter, and you can see the band, you can see the end, you can see the beginning, and you know who ends up choosing. And so when we talk about God choosing or predestining uh, people, all that an Arminian means is that God happens to have seen what happened, and so in that sense, he knew it was going to happen. Okay, that's how an Arminian would see 
um, election or predestination, those words that we read in Romans 8 and the Romans 9 is talking about. So the question is whether God uh, would choose before, before the world to save someone and have some go to hell, or whether God would, would just say before the world that he could see which ones were going to get saved and go to hell. Okay, that's, that's their thing. Next one, universal atonement. This is the position that Jesus bore the sins of everyone who ever lived, so that when he was on the cross, he died for the sins of the whole world, and not just for the sins of those who would get saved eventually. That's, that's what universal atonement means, okay? Was it for everyone, or was it just for those who would end up getting saved? That's, that's the question. Arminians say it was for everyone. You're going to see what Calvin is saying in a minute, but you can probably guess. All right, resistible grace. I hope you guys aren't getting too bored. This is really important to understand, um, but I want to get through it. So resistible grace, the teaching that the grace of God can be resisted and finally beaten so as to reject salvation in Christ. This is the idea that man can reject the grace of God, that God can call man to salvation and the man can say no. That's the idea. Arminians say God can call you. He can come and he can call you. As the scripture says, no one comes but that the Father calls. He can call you and that you can say no to him. Calvinists, you're going to see what they believe, but that's what Arminians believe, that you can say no. And then fall from grace. This is the teaching that a person can fall from grace and lose his salvation. Arminians believe that man can choose to give up his salvation, that through walking away from the faith, a person can lose the gift of eternal life. Okay? In other words, everlasting life ain't everlasting if you're an Arminian. Okay? Um, depends, on, depends on what you do and what you choose. So as you can see, our meetings are very high on free will and choice and how, we, and how we interact with God according to our free will and choice. Now let's look at the five points of Calvinism, which are basically the opposite. This one has a fun acronym, TULIP, because the first letter of each one of these is an acronym, so TULIP, so you can remember that one. The other one, the acronym would be like or something. It doesn't have. So Calvin, one point for Calvinists on the acronym. All right. Total depravity. Man is completely touched by sin in all that he is, but it's not as bad as he could be. In other words, he's not, not every man is doing all the evil they possibly could be, but he's completely depraved. Furthermore, his total depravity means that the unregenerate, those who are not saved, will not of their own free will choose to receive Christ. Okay, so this, this is important because what this says, total depravity means you will never choose God. You cannot, you will not, you're depraved, it cannot happen. You could never want him. You could never want salvation. You're completely depraved, okay? You can never choose to accept Christ. You're too depraved by sin. So no one would ever come to Christ by free will. So if the Arminians are right about free will, the Calvinists are saying, okay, if that's true, no one would be saved because no one would ever come to Christ by free will. And then there's a concept called prevenient grace, which, we get, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, that, that both of them use to kind of bridge that gap. But we're gonna, we gotta get through this. Unconditional election, God elects, predestines a person based on nothing in that person because there's nothing in him that would make him worthy of being chosen. Rather, God's election is based on what is in God. God chose us because he decided to bestow his love and grace upon us, not because we are worthy in and of ourselves of being saved. Now, some of that's obviously true, and both of them believe it. None of us believe we're worthy of being saved, not Arminians, not Calvinists, not anybody in the middle. Okay, so that part's true. But what, what we're saying here is that Remember, they say conditional election, and God can see what you're going to do. They're, he's saying there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no choice that you're making that has anything to do with God's election. So the Armenians are saying God sees that you're going to choose him, and so then 
He, since he knows that, you're the elect. So then before the world, he knew it. Therefore, that was his election of you. The Calvinists say, no, no, no. Election happens without, without, him, without you ever being a person to choose him. He just, he just says these ones and those ones. Okay, that's unconditional election. Next, limited atonement. This says that Christ bore the sin of only the elect. Only those who would be saved were paid for on the cross. Okay? So when Jesus died on the cross, he actually didn't die for the sins of the whole world. He died for the sins of the people who would eventually be saved. And that the other people, if, if you don't get saved, you couldn't have gotten saved. If you don't end up saved, you actually could not have been saved because Christ only died for the sins of those that did get saved. Put that one in your pipe and smoke it. All right. Um, that is the implication, okay? Don't smoke anything. If you, please do not send me emails. The implication is that those who do not receive salvation could not have received it. It's very interesting. Irresistible grace. And by the way, Calvinists would be like, yeah. That's what, and Armenians would be like, no. And then they, rawr. Um, irresistible grace. The, the term, unfor- this is what they say, okay? And we're gonna walk through this. The term, unfortunately, suggests a mechanical and coercive force upon an unwilling subject. Um, in other words, that somebody's being forced to do something. But this is not the case. Instead, it's the act of God making the person willing to receive him. It does not mean that a person cannot resist God's will. It means that when God moves to save or regenerate a person, that the sinner cannot thwart God's movement and he will be regenerated. <laughs> this is silly. He says, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it, it, but it's this. Okay? That's exactly what it is. So all the things he's saying, it's not, that's exactly what irresistible grace is. That when God draws you, you have absolutely no way. His grace is irresistible. You cannot stop it. If he wants you saved, you're saved. The entire salvation thing that's happening, according to irresistible grace and Calvinism, is that God's coming to you and he's saying, I want you, David, and, and you could not say no to him. He's like, I want you, and I'm saving you, and you're saved. That's irresistible grace. It is in that sense, God is actually uh, making you saved. Not, there's, no, there's no part of it where there's a, where there's a uh, connection between the two of you, where you're participating in that, you're believing and you're doing whatever. God is making you safe. He's giving you the ability to believe, he's giving you the, and then he's pulling you into the kingdom. So it's irresistible grace, okay? Um, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about this and he says, God does not compel, he only woos. In other words, woo for those of you who are young. That's what guys with game do, okay? Like, what's up, girl? You know, they woo, okay? Compelling is, is making somebody do something. So C.S. Lewis, obviously on the Arminian side of that debate, says God doesn't compel, he only woos. The Calvinists go, no, he only compels. You are saved because God has compelled you to be saved. That's irresistible grace. Um, we're going to get into all this stuff. I know some of you are like, what? That's this, you know, we're going to get into it. That's what, that's what the Calvinists, generally speaking, would say. And of course, remember, all of these things on both sides, there's nuance to. I'm giving you the, the five-minute version or the 50-minute version. But anyway, um, so God saves people without their will, even in spite of their will, or definitely in spite of their will, because of total depravity, because they can never will to be saved. So God has to save them without their will, against their will. Okay, irresistible grace. Last one is perseverance of the saints, that we are so secure in Christ that we cannot fall away. This means that once a person is saved, they cannot lose their salvation or fall away from the grace of God, the gift of grace that God has given them, cannot fall away from it. In other words, for the Calvinists, everlasting life means everlasting life. So um, some of these things, I think probably as you've listened through this, 
Some of these things you're like, yeah, I believe, I think the Arminians are probably right about that one. The Calvinists are probably about that one. The Arminians are about that one, that, right? That's how most people do this. Most people don't take one of these positions and like, Rah! but there are people who do. Um, you guys have probably seen a little bit of book, but we're gonna get, we're gonna get into why, because at the end of the day, these are just descriptions. What we care about is what's in the scripture. So we're gonna get into the scripture and what it says and how it may or may not connect to these things that Calvinists and Arminians say. It's a lot of stuff to understand. Hey, that thing's back on, and I'm late. Um, Sort of back off, and then I don't feel as bad. Um, I know that reading through the book of Romans is difficult. Now, I love it because studying the word of God and knowing Gabor is amazing. When you break through this and you go through Romans and you, and you come up with what the Holy Spirit is leading you and helping you to understand here, you're going to know God more. You're going to be closer to him. You're going to understand more about what he's doing and how powerful and amazing and loving it is that he saved you, whichever, whichever side you go on, Okay. You have to remember that things like uh, uh, limited atonement and unlimited atonement, did God die for the sins of the whole world or did God just die for the people who were saved? At the end of the day, it has no practical difference. Those who are saved are still saved and those who are not are still not, right? So really the only reason to think about it is to think about what was going on there and to understand God more. So if you can look at these things that way, then you can come to know Jesus more. You can come to know God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can, you can understand that more. If you look at them as like things that freak you out, like some of the people who the Holy Spirit through Paul is talking to or says, well, are you, what, do we think this or do we think that, these objections? You don't need to go there with it. Because at the end of the day, what you need to understand is this doesn't affect your life in any significant way in terms of what I'd call faith and practice, the way that you actually live out your Christian faith. This is really not affecting that very much. What it, what it affects is the way that you understand God and his sovereignty and how glorious he is. And you can understand his love more on either side. Both sides understand God to be ultimately, completely loving. Both sides think evangelism is incredibly important. Even the Calvinists who think that God does it all and that you don't have any choice. They're crazy evangelists, right? So it doesn't even affect that, which some people will, will say, well, Calvinists, if they think that, why would they ever evangelize? Because the Bible tells us to. That's why they do it, okay? So you have, you have these views, but at the end of the day, what you need to understand is that God is so good, that God loves you. And if you're worried about being saved or not being saved, and God choose me. Here's the thing. You're here now or online or watching this later or whatever. You're here because he is calling you. Because he wants you. And so all you have to do is believe and be saved. Romans 10, 9 through 11. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. You don't have to, whatever you believe about Calvinism and Arminianism, if you do this, you will be saved. We know it. It's a promise. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. I don't care what you believe about Romans 9. I care that you believe in Jesus Christ. That's what's important. Okay? I know we're getting into this stuff because, because we have to study the whole word of God. Sometimes we get into this stuff that's a little, for some people might call it boring. For some people might be like, oh, I'm really into it. Either way, it doesn't matter. We've got to study the whole word of God. But don't forget what it's about. That God is setting captives free. That we are marching against the gates of hell. Don't forget about that. Don't forget that no matter what you came in here with today or you're listening online or wherever you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you think that God could never love you, it's not true. No matter how much you think God could never forgive you, it's not true. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not 
all of our except that one thing you did that nobody knows about, that if anybody ever found out about, everybody would hate you. No, all unrighteousness. He knows the darkness of your heart. He knows the sinful fallen world, and he will forgive you and make you white as snow and clean. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe with your heart in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in Jesus, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not by your works. It's a free gift of Jesus Christ by his death on the cross and his resurrection. There is joy and peace waiting for you. For those of you who know Jesus, there is so much for you to be grateful for today. So praise and honor God for what he's done for you. Have some fun being a Christ follower. It is a blast to be a Christ follower, even in the hard times, even as my wife suffered this week. And it's really, I don't know how many of you have broken an ankle, but I mean, the slightest movement and it's incredible pain. I think she's faking, but no, I don't. She's not, she's not faking. It's terrible. But even in the midst of that, we can still laugh. Not too hard, because it'll shake the ankle, but we still, oh, it's a blast to be a Christ follower. Praise God for that, because he's here for you and he's with you. And he loves you. All right, let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You are so good to every person in this room. All good gifts come down from the Father. Lord, Father, you have given us so many. And I know we go through some tough times. And you know. And anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, as you tell us in the scripture. We know. And what we say is, well, we don't want difficulties and we don't want persecution and we don't want disease and we don't want to have to deal with the fallenness of the world, we will do so and we will praise your name through all of it because you give and you take away and blessed be your name. We trust you. We love you. We serve you. God, we know that you're sovereign. However it works itself out in, in sort of the Romans 9 stuff and the Arminianism and the Calvinism and the thisism and thatism, what we know is that you love us. We know you love us so much, and Lord, give us strength. Give us grace. Give us, let us share with you the joy that you have. That for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame. But you are so good. Lord, let us share your joy. Let us have your joy. Let us have your power. Let us have your strength. Let us be fearless because of how loved we are by the only one that matters, Lord, and that is you. Thank you for every person here that you have made in your image and likeness, and they do matter to you, God. And they matter to me. And help them not to forget that as they go through this week, those who feel loneliness, those who feel depression, those who feel anxiety and fear, help them remember that you are thinking about them, that you love them, that they can turn to you, that they can know you more through your word. Not only that, but that we here at Acts Church, me and the other brothers and sisters in Christ here, love them too. Help people to know there is a place here for them to come, a people here that you have called to minister. And let those in Clark County be drawn to you and the Portland area be drawn to you. And let us minister to them. God, give us all that you have for us. Hold nothing back. We love you, Lord, in your name.